Welcome to Southern Fried Fantasy, a podcast for readers and writers, where Southern authors talk about books set in the region they call home. Book lovers beware, your TBR pile is about to get taller than high cotton. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. I'm your host, Bob Magoo of Tales by Bob. And this week, I am super excited to have on A.D. White. Uh, A.D. White is a member of the Fans of Urban Fantasy Facebook group. That's how we came into contact with each other. And if you are a reader or writer of uh, Urban Fantasy, I really can't uh, extol the virtues of that group enough. Uh, go give it a go give it a gander so but first uh ad could you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what ties you to the south uh yes um well my family's been in the south for uh, as long as we've been here uh when we came from europe in 1747 uh there was a big rebellion in scotland in 1745 and then the uh the king made a rule that if any Scots got caught with weapons on them twice, that they got shipped away to Australia or South Carolina or Georgia. Uh, so that's what happened. They got caught with weapons and they got shipped out. Yeah. And and uh, they had to spend about 10 years here doing some indentured servitude. And then they were allowed some freedoms to be colonists and stuff like that. Yeah. My, uh, our, you know, I, I, I know it's definitely not, you know, just the South, but there's a, my family also is real big on, uh, you know, tracing that family history. And it, it's definitely something that is very prominent down here. Everyone wants to know, you know, who your people are, where they're yeah. from, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so we, our, our family is kind of similar, uh, but Irish. And uh, we came over uh, in the 1700s uh, from County Cork. Uh, so, and actually we came into South, South Carolina, but like then promptly went to Georgia. So, yes, yes. My, my dad's family are, uh, they're, they're from Georgia and, uh, and my mom's side of the family are the South Carolinians. And, you know, that was a very sort of insular area because it was so surrounded by swamp. So everyone's pretty well intermarried down there and, and a lot of all the families know they're related some way though. They don't know how and, and it's a, it's a small culture and, and it's the same way in Georgia, you know, South Georgia is very rural and, yeah. um, and, you know, people on both sides of the family were farmers and, and that's what they did for hundreds of years. Yeah. And that there's very much like, I can't count the number of times, like, no, no one wants to know who you are. They want to know who your parents are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's cause like I grew up, you know, very rural, rural Alabama and, uh, that was very much the case. Oh, oh, who, who are your parents? Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and you know, you better hope you've got some good parents because they just in that moment formed their entire opinion of you. <laughs> yes, they do. What you're capable of and, and, and what kind of person you might be. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, that, you know, the South uh, for good and ill has a reputation as being somewhat insular. And I, and I feel like that's part of it is uh, a lot of, especially like more rural people, part of their discomfort with outsiders is they don't have that history to draw upon. You know, they, they don't know your parents' reputation. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, but all right. So you have uh, a couple of novels. It's the, I do. 
Uh, it's the Asheville Hustle series. Yeah. Uh, so let, let's talk about those for a bit. Give us a kind of give us the rundown. Okay. Well, um, um, I do a lot of ghost writing, and uh, I've been involved in writing since about 2001, uh, when Amazon started getting big, and they first sort of dipped a dipped a toe into publishing. Um, I've been involved with that for a long time, uh, and I even started a not for profit. Uh, when I was at App State as an English major, uh, that was a publishing company. So we published work there. And, um, and so a few years ago, my wife got into the, um, entrepreneurship master's degree program at Western Carolina and she needed some business to run. So I created Asheville hustle to be a project business for her program so that she could manage a writer's career for her entrepreneurship program. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty neat. But the, uh, the, the book series itself is basically a hidden world series. It's contemporary fantasy. It takes place in Asheville. Uh, and what it's about is that um, there are all these sort of supernatural creatures living adjacent to us. We don't know they're there, uh, but there are some people who can see them. And the people who see them all around us have a lot of trouble adjusting to that because a lot of them are not very nice. Yeah. Um, so there's so, this, uh, there's this teenage girl who can see them and she's, uh, she's an immigrant. So I, I made this story sort of, a an homage to Asheville's, um, Eastern European, uh, community. Cause we have a really big Eastern Euro- European community here in Asheville. Yeah. We have, uh, Ukrainians, Russians, uh, Poles, Czechs, um, a lot of people from former Soviet union and they yeah. sort of live in these insular communities and not a lot of people get to meet them. And, uh, and they're really very cool people. And they have a lot of really interesting supernatural stories that parallel ours from yeah. the South, you know, I, I wanted to touch on that. Cause that's something that, uh, you know, the, the part of the whole point of this podcast is kind of, you know, dispelling a lot of the, the cliches about the South and, you know, it, it, the South gets painted with such a broad brush. Oh, and, it really you, does. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, and it's like, you know, we have a large number, like I live in the Montgomery area. We have a very large uh, Korean community oh, and a yeah. very large South Asian community, you know, and, but you think Montgomery, Alabama, no one, you know, they typically, they think, you know, civil rights and the Confederacy, that's what comes <laughs> that's, to mind. But exactly I mean, right. because of all the auto manufacturing, a large number of Koreans have moved here. Um, and it's it's incredibly common to see church signs, like you don't see church signs in English and Spanish. You see them in English and Korean, you know, yeah. and it, that's it's to that degree. And so, uh, I haven't been to Asheville. It is one of my bucket list cities because I've I've heard so many good things about Asheville, um, but I had no idea that they had this large Eastern European community, and that's something that really piqued my interest about your series. Oh yeah, yeah, it's um. Uh... Uh, the, the particular family that I write about is, uh, is Albanian and Albanians of course are a really interesting culture because they're, um, they're ethnically Muslim as a, as a religious group, Mm -hmm. but they are also very, uh, sort of light complected. So Mm -hmm. they're, they're sort of referred to as the white Muslims of Eastern Europe. Yeah. And, uh, when they, when they come here. Uh, people don't realize that they are, a lot of them are Muslim. And when they come here, they're like, well, 
why won't you go to church with me? You know, you know how we are. We're like, <laughs> yeah. hey, come to church. You know, yeah. And um, and and we have to sort of relearn some of that. Um, yeah. And uh, and the and I have this, I have this uh, this whole storyline where this guy comes from uh, communist Albania and he escapes with his little sister and the rest of his family is killed by, of course, the the government. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's actually a true story. I, I knew a guy who was actually from Bulgaria and then he had to, he, he fought as a child soldier against the communists, uh, oh, wow. with his family. Yeah. He was like seven years old, carrying an AK around murdering communists. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, oh, and it really crazy. did a lot to him. He had to escape Bulgaria to uh, Turkey where he lived for a while. Mm-hmm. And then he, he escaped, um, once things kind of started going, sideways in turkey in the 60s and the 70s he escaped to the united states and came to north carolina and, yeah uh, it's it's crazy uh the the paths you know, like you you think someone immigrating from from that kind of situation you think oh well they'll wind up in new york you know you don't think yeah. that they're going to wind up in north carolina but that, that <laughs> that's that happens exactly right but that happens all the time you know yeah. uh the the uh uh the last writing group meetup I had, uh, we had, a uh, in, in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, one of the women who showed up was from Iceland, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it's one of those, how, how do you get from Iceland to Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama, you know? And like hearing yes. how that all played out, it was just fascinating, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's like you said, like, uh, it, it's always surprising, but you know, I discovered, I, I did a lot of traveling when I was young and, um, and I, I had this old car that, I still own, but I bought it when I was a teenager with money that I made cutting grass and, uh, and it was a cool old muscle car. And, uh, and I drove it all over the United States, all over Canada. I lived in Quebec for a year and I discovered that, uh, we Southern people are pretty exotic. Once we get outside of the South, we think we're ordinary, <laughs> but everyone's like, Hey, say this, say that, let me yeah. buy you a beer, you know? <laughs> uh, so it, it's kind of like that with people who move here. They, they see where we live is somewhere that's, you know, it's nice and warm. The weather's pretty good. You know, and it's, it's, you know, they, they see our culture as something that, that might be inviting to them. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's, uh, it's definitely interesting how many parallels that you can find. Uh, and, you know, like, uh, I know the South, we have such a strong emphasis on family, you know, and, oh yeah. And so there, that, that really resonates with a lot of immigrant families, you know, they still have these incredibly strong ties. Uh, I know, uh, like culturally America has kind of shifted away from the multi-generational uh, uh, family homes. But, uh, and I'll say that I don't know a lot of people that do that, but what is surprisingly common in the area I'm from is it's not uh, all, you know, all the generations of a family living in the same home, but they all live on the same property, you know? Oh, yes. That, that, you know, there's, there's, there's the house, you know, that the, it, probably the grandfather, great grandfather built. And then on the property, there's a couple of mobile homes for, you know, kids and grandkids live in, you That's know? That's right. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's strange how, how some of these uh, parallels kind of play out. Yeah. And we have a lot of that going on here in, in Appalachia, of course, you know, this is mm. Southern Appalachia here in Asheville, but you know, we have a lot of that going on because, you know, post-war got a lot of guys, like for example, my wife's grandfather, he went to uh, world war II served as a cavalry scout and after he saved the world from the nazis he came back and worked in cleveland um building cars in the auto plants and then building houses when he wasn't working in the auto plants 
So he came back with a pocket full of money and he bought this entire holler where her family grew up. And, and the whole thing is just her family. Yeah. And now, now it's dotted with one, two, three generations of people who came out from he and his wife, just starting Mm -hmm. family and, and, you know, saving money and buying this land. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, it's, it's neat, you know, uh, Southern Appalachia is very different from Southern Alabama, you know, for all the cultural ties of the South, <laughs> they're very different places, but yes. again, it's, yes. it is neat to see how, uh, cause it, like where I'm from it, you know, used to, everything was farmland, you know, everyone was farming down here, but most people don't farm anymore. Um, and so, you know, there's all these families would own all this land. And then, you know, divide it up among the, the kids and the kids just live there and then their kids live there. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a little more spread out than a hauler. Um, but it's, you know, it's very much the same, the same concept. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, being from the South and moving to Appalachia showed me that there are a lot of stark differences between our Southern culture and, um, in in Appalachian culture. So there's like Southern Appalachian culture, which is sort of has a toe in the South. And then there's Mm -hmm. the sort of hardcore Appalachia with coal mines and all that. Yeah. And, uh, and it's very different, but we have a lot of the same sort of generational poverty problems and things like Mm -hmm. that. And, and then of course the family land is going away because all the land up here is just, it's becoming so expensive that people have to sell it to to get by. But then of course, once you sell it, where do you go? Exactly. Everything else is expensive. So you have to leave the area. Oh yeah. No, I, you know, I just, uh, uh, just, just even in my life, adult lifetime, you know, just the, the, I can remember, you know, it was pretty easy. You could fairly easily get an acre of land for like a thousand dollars out, you know, very rural area. Oh yeah. And, and now, you know, that's, you know, easily 5,000, dollars plus and good luck you, you can't buy an acre of land anymore you know you can <laughs> you can exactly buy right you can buy you know 10 plus acres at a go um yeah. but these communities you know like the 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 county i'm from uh there aren't very many you know high paying jobs you have to travel to montgomery for the most part to find any you know well-paying job and how someone you know working at the Hardee's going to afford, you know, $50,000 just for the land to put a trailer on, you know, that's exactly right, man. And that's a similar problem we have here. And it's, and, and I actually write some of that into, into what I'm into the novels I'm working on. You know, it's like, I've got a, a couple of different series that I'm working on and all that seems to factor in because it seems like we're coming full circle from when our ancestors immigrated to the United States because it was a better opportunity for them they couldn't afford to buy land in Scotland or in Ireland Mm -hmm. or they had political pressures moving them out. And, uh, and now we have sort of the same thing where a lot of people are being uprooted and are are having to find a better economic sort of situation where they can live and and grow their families. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, and coming from someone who, uh, I, I was, uh, moving from, you know, very rural, Alabama to to Montgomery right as the housing market really started to heat up. Oh, um, lucky you. Yeah, it was oh it was fantastic. <laughs> uh, um it was it was great. <laughs> great experience. Um and now but you know uh uh and it's only gotten worse from there and uh you know it's 
I, I know like a problem that Montgomery's having is uh, there's a number of companies out of Atlanta that are buying up all the uh, cheaper houses to turn them into rentals and Airbnbs. Yeah, that's and, exactly right. Yeah. And so, you know, even, you know, if you had the money, you know, five years ago to buy kind of the entry level home, uh, good luck finding one because they've all been, they've all been bought up so they can be rented back to you. So it's exactly right. It's stressful. Yeah. So you, you talked about how you're kind of working that into your, your series. Um, and I, I think that's, that's awesome. Are there other elements of Southern culture that you kind of felt it was important to work into your, into your books and how did you go about doing that? Yeah, there's a, um, there's a big element of food culture that I use. Mm. I think that that's really important with, if you're going to write something about the South is, is not to leave out food culture, you know, I'm a, you can't see me right now, but <laughs> I'm a, I'm a portly lad. So, uh, <laughs> you, are, you are 100% speaking my language right now. Yeah. Well, well, specifically, um, what I do is I take these Albanian immigrants, you know, this guy is grown when he comes over here, which is basically the story of my friend, Mike, who came over here. His name was Hussein and he changed it to Mike when he came to America because he didn't want people mm. to be uncomfortable around him. Yeah. And, uh, and, and. In the story, he has this little sister who was basically a, an oops baby for his parents who were mm -hmm. in their 40s, almost 50. His mom was almost 50, and they had a, a baby when they were that age. So he came over here with her when she was about five, and he was grown. So she grows up from about age five in the Wilmington, North Carolina area where they landed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and she finds this recipe for this thing called kolachi, which is like a, I don't know if you mm. know what that is. Yeah. But it's like a. Uh, the, when I was, when I lived in Texas, I found there were a lot of Czech immigrants in Texas and, uh, and they make kolache there in Texas, but it has like a Texas spin on it. Right. Yeah. So it uses local fruit, things like that. So that's what she does. She has this, uh, kolache recipe that uses white peaches. So she makes this oh, wow. Americanized Albanian recipe. Yeah. So um, my, my experience, so, uh, I, I do another podcast called books beards and booze and i, I did an interview with a, a, a texas author named travis uh, m riddle uh, about a horror novel that he wrote and in there he he had kolaches in there and i they were i had never heard of such um, <laughs> oh nice but the way he was describing them and I, when i interviewed him i was like i gotta know what's going on here and uh i was real intrigued uh it sounded right up my alley and uh they are slowly making their way eastward. Um, there is a place in the area that now offers them. And also because we're getting uh, Bucky's, you know, the big Texas gas station. Oh, it's, yeah. They have, uh, they, they make them by the dozens, you know, and you can get them, get them there. And I've, I've picked up a couple of Bucky's kolaches over the, over the past year. And uh, yeah. Um, can attest. They're fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, the trick is to get to know some Eastern European people and get invited to their home and have someone's grandma make some for you. Oh, like yeah. That is the that is the heater right there. That's where it's at. It's like eating cornbread from your grandma. You know, it's like <laughs> there's there's no way around the, the real deal, you know? Yeah. And, and oh, that's yeah. kind of that's kind of the underlying uh, thing there is that, you know, she she sort of finds her mom's recipe as she's growing up and and she she wants to kind of connect with her. So she makes this recipe. And, and of course her, her parents are, 
you know, dead in this purge and her, her brother yeah. escaped with her to America. So she's, so she does this whenever peaches come in season, you know, white peaches are a specific variety to Georgia and South Carolina, or, or they used to be there everywhere mm-hmm. now. People plant yeah. peaches, peach trees all over the place now, but um, that's what she does. She grows up doing this. And so when they come in season, she has this thing where, she takes over the kitchen. She wears her mom's apron and she makes this recipe, which is very much something that we do in the South as, you know, just sort of people who've been here for hundreds of years, you know, we all have a family recipe and we can all relate to that. Oh yeah. And that's one of the things we have in common with immigrants, you know, is that they all come here and they all want to feel at home, but they also really don't want to be here. They want to be back home with all of their their people and, mm-hmm. and and their food and and their family and all that stuff, but they can't because of political pressures or whatever. Right. So they have a little taste of home. Yeah, no, I love that, and I especially love it when. So I had a I had a bizarre experience one time. I was at a wedding in Birmingham, and uh, I got I didn't know uh, anyone, and uh, I was just kind of sitting at this table with a bunch of strangers, and uh, they found out I was from Montgomery and. You know, for for those who aren't intimately aware, it's they're about an hour and a half apart, a straight shot down the interstate. And uh, one of them asked me, "Is like, well, you know, when you're shopping, like, what do you think? Do you think like Birmingham or do you go to Atlanta?" And I was like, "Man, like, <laughs> it's my God, there's three hundred fifty thousand people in the in the metro area. Like, what what do you think I can't find in Montgomery?" that I'd have to go to Atlanta to find that I can't get off Amazon, you know, <laughs> you know, right. yeah. but yeah. he's like, Oh, well, I, I was really, I was really talking more about the food, you know um, you know, like, I just feel like y'all probably don't have a lot of food options. I was like, clearly you have not seen how fat Montgomery <laughs> is. Um, but you know, other, like other than say, like we don't have an Ethiopian restaurant, but other than that, I cannot think of a, uh, a restaurant type that we don't have yeah um, montgomery is a real city it, you know bafflingly yeah. so uh, and uh and so but so many of these uh fantastic restaurants are immigrant run restaurants you know they brought their culture their recipes with them and they're so good um yeah exactly yeah and so i but so you know for as much as uh people outside the south kind of look down on the south you very much get people in <laughs> clearly in Birmingham looking down on Montgomery. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like you were saying, you have this big um, um, sort of uh, Asian and East Asian culture going on mm-hmm. and the Koreans and, and all that stuff yeah. in, uh, in Montgomery. And it's like, you know, you also, that, that will also bring things like your Asian grocers and things like mm-hmm. that, where you can go oh, and yeah. buy really good ingredients and yes. And, you know, you can, you can really experiment yourself with, with Southern recipes using some of their sort of techniques and ingredients, which yeah. I think is really, really cool. I, I have said for years that Indian food and Southern food are basically the same, just with different spices. Yes. You know, thank they, you. They taste yes, very different, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's basically the same stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 my, I recently got really turned. I, I never really give an Indian a fair shake. Um, I had a bad experience with some curry when I was younger and I just was too scared to go back basically. And, but the past like six months, uh, I, I started having good experiences with it. And like, now I can't get enough of it, you know, yeah. um, cause it, it's, it's differently spiced comfort food. Yeah, basically. very much so. Yeah. 
And it's, yeah. it's also very similar, you know, it's a, it's a temperate climate where, you know, you get some heat spikes in certain, in, in the lower, mm-hmm. so, more Southerly areas, but you know, you have a very much a working class population in India yeah. where, where people, you know, do a lot of either farming or they do trade work and, you know, it's, it's a lot like the South. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that the food will be very similar. Yeah. And another cool little cultural thing is we have a, a, a lot of karaoke culture, uh, or a lot more <laughs> yeah. karaoke culture in Montgomery than a lot of places in the South. And it's because uh, uh, the, uh, the Koreans, they come work here for the big Hyundai plant. And while they're here, they, they want to do what they did back home. Uh, yeah, sure. And they love karaoke. Um, and so because of that, we've got some really killer karaoke bars, you know? Oh, that's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't do it. No one wants to hear me sing anything. So, but, <laughs> but it's it's good to know that it's there. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, we have yeah. Uh, we have a really cool uh, sort of emerging restaurant culture here in Asheville, and that's sort of, um, and I and I use that to kind of riff off of for my books, you know, because we have this sort of fusion thing going on. We have a lot of people who take two different or three different cultures and mash them together and create food from it, which is, which is very much an immigrant thing to do. And, yeah. uh, and so, uh, one of the characters I have in the Asheville hustle series is basically, um, uh, a, a Baba Yaga figure, but instead of in a house with chicken feet that roams around, she's an old Russian grandma who drives a food truck around and serves fried chicken wings and uh, i love that so much that (laughs) that is amazing Uh, i love it that's something that i try and do a little bit of in my series is to kind of interpret you know uh and put a very like southern spin on things like that so like having a, a a food truck with chicken in place of the the house on chicken legs like that is you were, you were speaking my language there. I love that so yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, I think that people who, who read urban fantasy are, are very up on folklore mm-hmm. and that's, that's really why they read it because they want to see how it interfaces with our modern culture because oh, yeah. we're telling the same stories they used to, but we just, we're not doing it by the campfire. We're doing it by the Kindle or whatever, yeah. you know, or by the book page. Yeah. So, uh, we've, we've touched on this a lot already. Um, and so uh, I like to ask, where do you get your ideas from? But that's such a cliche question, but kind of how I, how I spin it is I, I like to know how much do authors incorporate from their own life as opposed to like some authors, you know, Hey, you know, all the characters are based on my family members, but then others like, no, I keep a, a firm delineation, you know, my, my books are one thing, my personal life is very much another. And so I, yeah. I've been, you know, I can tell you definitely have worked in a lot of, you know, people that you've encountered over the years. Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I do. I, I work in a lot of people that I encounter. Um, I can, I can go back to this, uh, this character, Mike, that I knew who was mm-hmm. a child soldier in Bulgaria. Uh, when he came here from, um, from Turkey, he got into working in group homes because he was so um, affected by being a child soldier and by mm-hmm. being an orphan, a war orphan. Uh, he and his siblings all escaped to Turkey, but you know, they lost their parents and they basically had to just sort of make their own way in the world. So what he did is he came to the States, he worked in group homes. And when he would encounter kids who were um, so headstrong and so sort of self-destructive, 
he would make it a point to get involved in their lives because they weren't going to get adopted. They were going to age out of the system and they were going to just go straight to prison. So he worked on a bunch of those guys and turned them in, into uh, uh, people who could use their strengths to be productive members of society. So yeah. uh, basically what we have in Asheville Hustle is this guy, uh, Mike, who is this Albanian and he's this Albanian gangster. He's not a group home guy, but he's based on my friend, Mike. Um, what he does is he owns group homes and, uh, and he does it because, you know, it's a good way for him to launder money and things like that. But he also cares about war orphans and things like that because he realizes there's all these bad supernatural things around who are causing these kids to be orphans. Yeah. So he feels responsible to take care of them. So he has, he has this house and I used to live, uh, in a pretty bad neighborhood in Wilmington when I lived there. Um, and it was, a it was so bad that the Catholic church abandoned one of their churches, uh, oh, wow. in, uh, in, in this neighborhood, like they just locked the doors and walked away from it. And, uh, and so what I did was I imagined that Mike lived in this place and this is where he raised his sister. But then when there was a kid in these group homes who couldn't adjust and who was going to be nothing but trouble and it was going to head straight to prison, he would take them out of the group home and put them in his house and he would yeah. oversee their behavior himself. So he has eight of these guys who he raised basically as their adopted father who were all just lots of behavior problems, tough as nails. And he basically takes them into the fold and teaches them how to hunt monsters. Yeah. And, and these are guys who, who, who are unable to do anything else. They're never going to be brick masons or bakers or college professors or anything like that. So these guys are all very tough, awesome, like, they've been training their whole lives yeah. They start when they're teenagers and now they're all in their forties, you know, and they're just, and these, and that's who you see in the, in the first book in Asheville hustle is all these guys who are like, they are a problem for all the bad guys, but they, you you also see that they really are not well-adjusted people who belong yeah. in polite society. And that's right. really sort right. of the, the underlying thing there is that Mike saved a lot of guys from going to prison, but, a lot of these guys really like skirt the edge of what's legal and what's not. And, and, you know, they sort of, but, but he made it his mission to stop these kids from self-destructing and that's what, Hmm. and, and it was successful. So yeah, I I love that. that. series. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm always just on a personal note. I'm a big (laughs) fan of the whole like found family. uh, Oh yeah. Like I I love that. Um, And so any, any book that assembles a team at any point, like I'm sold. (laughs) you know well and uh, you know you also have to throw in the thing where it's like all these guys are are um are most of these guys are supernatural creatures themselves or they are um and and i created a bunch of new world supernatural things like where things come from europe and they come from asia that would never otherwise have met and then mm -hmm. they meet each other and they're like hey you're really cool let's let's have some babies yeah so then you have these sort of new creatures that exist in the new world and uh and then you have of course native influences and things like that yeah Um, so i think i think the new world is fertile ground for uh for a lot of interesting new ideas uh, while you're respecting the old ideas yeah no that that's awesome so i was building on that um with with these supernatural uh entities that you're working with um have you are there any from like southern folklore specifically that you've worked in 
Oh yes, 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 yes. There's a, there's a really cool, um, sort of folklore story, uh, from coastal South Carolina about, uh, this guy who's a lizard man. There are people oh, who swear, okay. they yes. swear to God that they have seen this lizard man in the, in the swamp outside, you know, Columbia or outside Charleston. Yeah. And, uh, and these are credible people who, you know, it's like, if somebody that you really respect and, and, and admire yeah. told you they saw Bigfoot, you'd be like, huh? Yeah. Bigfoot's real. Well, kind of on a, <laughs> on a, uh, on a personal note again. Um, so, you know, you, you talked about how you've done a lot of ghost writing. I've done a lot of uh, game writing, be it for board games or video games. Oh, and cool. uh, I actually got hired uh, I, and I love cryptids. Like I don't necessarily believe in most of them, but to me, life is more fun if they are real. So I just dive into yes. it, you know? And so, uh, but I actually got hired by someone. Um, they were like, uh, they wanted me to basically plot out, uh, an adventure um, using a cryptid. And it, I can't remember why, but it had to be in like the Carolinas area for, for whatever reason. And I use the, I use the lizard man. Um, yeah, and it's, awesome. it's, it's fascinating. Uh, I, I, I love the lore around it. it. And yeah, it's one of those, like on the one hand, it's like, Oh, there's no way. But on the other is like, there's so many reputable people that have clearly seen something you know, and it you can't just <laughs> yes. out and out discount it because so many people have seen a yeah. thing. So, yeah. I, so yeah, I love, I love, I love the basically anyone who works in a cryptid. I'm already you know a big fan. <laughs> oh big yeah, fan man. Of, it's so. a, well, and and the way I do it is that you know these guys grow up in Wilmington and they're they're near the swamp. So uh, there's a lot of lore that that circulates around the swamps because yeah. it's such a mysterious, impenetrable place. You know, because you know before they ran, uh, before the government ran a highway you know, made of concrete and rebar through, uh, coastal South Carolina swamps. Like it was a very isolated area. Like you either had to land on a ship in Charleston or you had to take a wagon from the North to drive down the coast. And there was no way to get through the swamp really. Like you couldn't, I mean, you could walk through obviously, but, or you could take a horse, but you know, it was really dangerous, you know? Um, so a lot of these people were very isolated and what happened was, um, when Charleston was there, all these people worked in the swamps to do ship stores when they had, uh, during the age of sale. So they would cut down pine trees that were nice and straight, of course, uh, for ship masts. Uh, they would farm, um, tar and they would farm, uh, gosh, I can't remember the Turpentine. Yeah. That's what they yeah. make out of pine sap. So they would farm turpentine and all that stuff for uh ship stores, you know, because they needed all that because once they got across the Atlantic, the ships were really beat up and they had to repair them because, mm-hmm. you know, wood ships are very delicate actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is one of the things that I go into um, is there's a reason why there were no uh, sort of bad guy vampires here because uh, until steel ships came along is because when they got on a ship, the, the things that lived in the water would attack them. They'd be like, no, you don't, you don't touch yeah. the water. And it's I one of the that. reasons vampires are afraid of water. They don't, they don't go into water uh, is because they're afraid of the people who live there. Yeah. Um, As someone who's terrified of the ocean, um, yeah. <laughs> that fascinated and terrified. Like, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, a lot of this actual hustle series that I write is influenced by the, 
the Black Keys album Brothers. And okay. there's a there's a there's a track on that album called uh, Little Black Submarine. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I came up with the idea that there was a a Prussian vampire who was very old who took part in the Nazi regime and he was very interested in submarines. So he had this submarine built that would be invisible to the water folks so that he could move under the water and sort of have his way and then mm-hmm. go to the new world and then set up his own empire here and, yeah. and bring his sort of, and I don't know if you know much about Prussian history or anything. I'm not a historian, but uh, the thing is that people say that Germany what what turned into Germany was Prussia, and Prussia yeah. was basically an army with uh, just a country. Like they were really an army; they weren't a country. Yeah. And and that's where I drew that from. Is these people were very warlike, and they and they really uh, did a lot of things that were motivated by not so much by greed, but like the the idea that you could have an honorable life as a warrior and stuff like that. And that's very mm-hmm. much sort of a a vampire thing. Like if you couldn't be killed, you'd be looking for meaning in your life. And yeah. you would be looking for challenge and things like that. And that's one of yeah. the things I built into the series is like this guy takes his submarine here and he gets stuck off the, off the coast of North Carolina. And he's stuck in there for about 50 years. Cause he can't come out because if he comes out, the water folk are going to get him. Yeah. And he, and he just, <laughs> he's down there with his crew and he stays there and he's, he has all this sort of treasure stored in this sub and he's like stuck on the bottom of the ocean and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And then of course, he gets free and then comes ashore and then there's drama. Yeah. Um, but, but it's, um, there, there's a lot of stuff that I write in where it's, you know, European monsters coming to the new world like that. Yeah. Um, like for example, uh, I used to hear a lot of stories about trolls. They used mm-hmm. to tell me stories about trolls to keep me away from the ponds, you know, because they didn't want me going around the ponds when I was a kid because oh, I, wow. they were f- afraid I'd drown. Yeah. Um, and they didn't want me going to the beach by myself, things like that. Yeah. So they'd say, well, if you go down by the pond, the trolls will get you, you know, and mm-hmm. and my uncle went down and hid in the woods and scared me one time making troll sounds. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that's like a very, uh, very European folklore thing that, yeah. that they brought with them and, and it endured into you know, that I guess the eighties when that happened to me, but or nineties. And, uh, and so I wrote trolls into this story as the people who they brought from the new world to do all the ship stores because, you know, the, uh, they weren't bothered by the snakes that bit them, uh, bit people. They weren't bothered by the bugs and they weren't bothered by mosquitoes because nothing could really get through their hide because they were so tough. So they brought them here to do all this work and it's really analogous to slave labor. But, um, but what they did is they, they decided, well, we're not going to work for you anymore. And there's nothing you can do about it. Once the revolution happened, they were like, well, we're going to go in the swamps and be our own culture. And that's, and that's what they do. They sort of hide out in the swamps, but, um, but what happens is, uh, one of these brothers that grows up with, with Mike, the Albanian, he's like this sort of tough guy, football hero guy. And he's, he's a big, strong dude. And, uh, he gets into this sort of fracas with the, one of the lizard men people who's also a, at a rival high school and they play, play football against each other. And, and they're both these sort of teenage supernatural creatures who are, who appear to be human. Yeah. And, uh, they get into this sort of, I don't know, sort of dumb high school rivalry <laughs> and, uh, and then this, this sort of backwoods troll gets involved and 
and then there's this sort of interchange that happens and and the trolls kind of realize that like man we're really not doing ourselves any favors by shutting ourselves off from society we need to yeah we need to sort of leave the swamp and 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 sort of uh participate in society in a bigger way and uh because you know what if you're if you're removed from society which is one of the the underlying lessons of the supernatural is that you know it, when you turn into a werewolf it, it cuts you off from your your immediate society, your family, your friends and all that. And it turns you into something you don't want to be, which is, you know, you lose your ability of reason and you lose your ability to be thoughtful and you're just Mm. sort of the animalistic nature of a human. Um, so there's a lot of that going on where it's like people are coming to the new world and they're trying to figure out who they want to be because they don't have to be what they were in the old country. Yeah. And so that's what happens in Asheville is that there's a vampire that comes to Asheville and he establishes a place where he says, okay, there's no um, bad behavior here inside the city limits and you can come here and you can live if you want a fresh start and you don't want to be what you were. And, uh, and we're going to enforce that. So he has, uh, he's a, he's a sort of very old vampire and he's, he's very wise, but he also has this, uh, this woman vampire who is kind of his enforcer and she's like uh, hundreds of years old. She has a really cool backstory to her too, but you know, you see her in the first book, you know, they're these bad guys come in and try to start a bar fight with the, with the brothers in uh, cause they killed one of their vampire buddies mm-hmm. in the process of rescuing these kids. And that's what they do is they take these kids and drain their blood and they make this sort of designer cocktail for black market vampire yeah. sales. So that's what they're doing in Asheville. And then, and then they run afoul of these bad guys. So she steps in and she's like, Nope, there's no fighting here. You know? And it's sort of like, uh, I don't know if you've seen, um, Yellowstone, but you know, Rip has this line on Yellowstone where he says, uh, you know, there's no fighting on this ranch. And if you want to fight somebody, you got to fight me and I'll fight you all day. (laughs) And it's, uh, it's like that. So she steps up on him. She's like, Hey, look, there's no fighting here. And if you're going to fight somebody, I'm going to, I'm going to make you wish you hadn't. So, so what we have is a situation where these immigrants get to come to Asheville and they get to figure out who they want to be and they get to take up a trade or they get to take up a, you know, sort of leave behind their old strictures of what they had to be and how they were seen in Europe, which is very much, you know, what's happening with our immigrants here. You know, we have, we have, uh, you know, people who felt like they were going to grow up in, you know, the former Czech Republic, or former Yugoslavia, or, um, you know, we have Bosnians, we have Serbs, we have all that stuff. And, and, and they have the choice to bring these fights here with them that they fought over for a thousand years, or they have the choice to just come here and be Americans, you know? Yeah. No, yeah, no. Uh, I don't know. This kind of triggered a thought. This is something that not a lot of people might be aware of, but this may have changed, but at the time when I saw the statistic, um, they showed, uh, I saw a chart that was like, what is the uh, most commonly spoken language in a state other than English? And uh, <laughs> for Louisiana, it was Vietnamese. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Right? And it was because during the Vietnam War, a lot of refugees wound up in Louisiana. And uh, yes. I forget exactly how it played out, but the reason that there's so many Vietnamese involved in the nail care industry is because uh, 
basically people early on realized, Hey, we have all these, uh, we have all these refugees here that need a skill set. You know, um, they need a they need a career, they need a job, and uh, people right. actively like like, hey, well, what about this? And so, you know, that's now the reason why there are so many Vietnamese nail parlors is because of that. Um, because you can, you know, that that's the beauty of America is uh, coming here, and uh, it's an opportunity to recreate yourself. Um, that's exactly right, man. So that is um, exactly right. Yeah. And, I, and I had a, um, I had an English professor or writing professor at App State who was a, a Vietnamese immigrant. And, uh, and he had a really cool story. Um, his name was Jade Nguyen. And, uh, and after the Vietnam War ended for us, uh, the communists took over. And because he was a college professor there, he was a young man, but he was mm-hmm. still a professor. Um, they put him in a labor camp because, mm. you know, uh, he needed to be reminded what it was like to be a comrade. Mm-hmm. So they, they put him in labor camp and he busted rocks for a couple of years. And, uh, and so he realized he had to, he had to get out. So he escaped yeah. the labor camp and he would only travel at night through the swamp and he would hug the trees and see which side the moss was on, which I totally understood because I've been in the swamp enough here in the South that moss only grows on one side. Um, so, you know, which way is North all right. the time. And, uh, and he grabbed his two nephews, which were the only kids in the generation succeeding him and immediately got on a boat and left. Mm-hmm. And he said his boat ran out of gas and they drifted for something like two weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, and their supplies ran out and he said, people were dying on the boat and, you know, there was all kinds of bad things going on and he got here and he was just. And then he realized that he was just nobody here. Like his credentials yeah. didn't come with him. He he had no way to prove who he was. Mm-hmm. The Vietnamese government, they got in contact with him. They were like, Hey, do you know who this guy is? And they were like, Oh yeah, we, he's a, he's an arch criminal and you needed to return him to us, you know, and all this stuff. Yeah. And they were just, they just wanted him back so they can make an example of him and execute him because he was an intellectual. Mm-hmm. And um, so he bought a 1968 firebird. He put his nephews in it and he drove them across the country and he said, when it, when this firebird breaks down, I'm going to settle wherever it is. Love it. And he, and he made it all the way to Connecticut from LA. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and then he of course had to go back to school. He got a bachelor's and then he went to Brown and got a master's and he went back to teaching, uh, writing and he wrote amazing books, but man, I had no idea what the Viet experience was until I met him. And it was yeah. such a eye opening thing. And it's just, it's so incredible that so many people can come here and they've grown up with skills, but they have to, they have to decide whether or not they want to be somebody new or if they want to continue doing what they were. And there's room for all of it in America. They can do, Mm -hmm. you know, they can come here and they can take up nails and they can play softball and they can do whatever they want, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's, it makes me very proud to be American. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So, all right. So. Uh, I like to definitely have content on here for uh, writers. So I'd like to dive into your process a little bit. Sure. Um, And as uh, being a ghostwriter since 2001, I dare say you're uh, probably going to be the most experienced writer that I have on here. Um, So are you more of a a plotter? Are you more of a pantser, some sort of hybrid? Uh, How would you kind of describe your process there? 
uh, I I have like a little running joke about how I don't have time to be a pantser. I yeah. have to be productive. So I, <laughs> I have to plot. Love that. Uh, because I, I have a I have a real problem with uh, plot bunnies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I and I and and if you work from home and you're a professional writer, you really have to be disciplined. Yeah. And you have to be more disciplined than you would have to be at a job because there's no like I'm gonna take an hour in my cubicle and play Minesweeper on the company time. Right. You know, it's like your every minute you have needs to be used toward finishing your product yeah. and, uh, and getting it as good as you can. So I, I'm a plotter 100%. Yeah. Um, uh, just as a, as an aside, um, years ago, uh, I, I've had two fibers that have done pretty well over the years. And, uh, the, my more recent one was where I was doing, you know, video and board game writing. But when I first got on the fiber, I was, I just had a, you know, for, uh, for like five bucks, I'll write you 500 words of, you know, whatever you want. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It, it was, uh, it was wild. Uh, it was, you know, and I, I had a number of, uh, book like ghostwriting novel offers come in. And at that point I hadn't finished a novel myself. And I was like, no, I'm not going to write someone else's novel till I've, till I've written my own. Yeah, um, but, yeah, yeah. but I, uh, I got some absolutely wild um, uh, uh, offers and uh, I think it definitely made me a better writer because the, when you're doing it, like you need the money, you, you take what comes your way even if it's not something that you're necessarily comfortable with. Like, I mean, I was hired, I got hired to write some bizarre stuff. And, uh, and so, but I feel like it overall, it made me a a better writer and I felt like you could probably speak to that. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, the first ghostwriting job I had was, uh, one of my buddies who knew that I was a writer and I was doing some writing stuff and his mother, he had this just brutal mother-in-law uh, who was always bringing up his novel and she was like, Hey, did you finish your novel yet? You know, <laughs> like that kind of shrill, like yeah. everybody loved Raymond's mom kind of deal, like <laughs> right. taking jabs at him every time there was a family gathering. Yeah. So he's like, dude, if you will finish my novel for me, I will give you $500. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was terrible. Like it was a, it was a, it was a really lousy book, but I, I took the entire, uh, I, I did an interview with him and I took his notes and I was like, okay, what do you want? And it was like making a pizza for somebody, you know, it's like, you know, when you're at work making pizzas, you're making pizzas for the people who want to eat them and pay for them, not for you. Right. And, and that's, and it's very much a, a true thing where, and, and I still remember that even with my own stuff. Like I, I like to write all these sort of cryptids and all this sort of immigrant story and, you know, and this sort of, uh, big sort of homespun tale about this guy saving kids who are being abducted by vampires and all this stuff. And there's a big backdrop with, you know, gods and things like that. But, you know, at the heart of it, you have to entertain people. You have to give people, you know, what they want and they want a delicious pizza and they want you to make it for them. And if they're paying you for it with their hard earned money, you better make them the best pizza you can make. Yeah. And, and that's why I'm a, I'm a plotter because I want to move into the part where I get what I call a zero draft done. And, and that's where you get that initial page count done. And then you go back through it and you hack the parts off that aren't any good, or you hack the parts off that are self-indulgent for you. 
and you remember that you're, you know, 2000 years ago, you'd have been the guy at the campfire who's telling everybody a story and entertaining them while they're, you know, after they've had a hard day of either hunting or gathering and, you know, it's, and it's that kind of deal. That's what we do. You know, we have to remember that, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, I'll be honest. I had never really uh, viewed it through that lens of, you know, we are the storyteller from around the fire 2000 years ago. I, I think that's a very interesting way to look at it. Yeah. It's, uh, I, it's, it's the way you stay grounded, you know, because once you have some, well, not you, I mean, when I say you, I mean me, yeah. <laughs> uh, once I had some success with writing, cause I had so many people, uh, tell me, um, when I was in my writing program that like, you know, that I wasn't really the kind of person who needed to be a writer, you know, because I, I had, uh, I had grown up in a really rough neighborhood and, and I used a lot of rough language and I didn't really write things that they appreciated in class and things like that. Yeah. And, and these were all sort of ladder climbing intellectuals who were really not writers. They were people who were good at, at trying to be the Dean or the chair <laughs> of their department. Yeah. Um, and, and, but then I had uh, a really good guy who was a writer in residence one semester. And he told me, he's like, I put something in for a competition for some scholarship money or something. I can't remember what it was, but he read it and he gave me runner up because he said, you don't need, you don't need this. He's like, you don't even need to be here, you know, because I was an older student and I had been doing construction work and things like that. And I had stopped doing that to go back to school to be a writer. And, uh, and so I had a very sort of workmanlike look, uh, outlook on, uh, on the trade of writing. And he told me, he said, you need to hang on to that because writing is a trade. It's like being yeah. a bricklayer. It's like being a baker. It's like anything else. He's like, if you don't get up every day and do it, then that's not who you are. Yeah. He's like bakers get up every day at four in the morning and they start making bread or, you know, donuts or whatever. Yeah. And he said, you can decide that you want to just be a guy who, who builds brick walls, or you can be the guy mm-hmm. who does all the ornate dry stack rock work, or you can be the guy who builds a Taj Mahal in terms of being a writer. Yeah. So he said, you know, all that discipline is very necessary. And that's really what I needed. And once I started having some success, I was like, there was a little piece of me that was like, ha ha, look what I can do. But right. I had to, I had to really rein myself in when I started working from home about 10 years ago. Um, I was working in the motorcycle industry, selling bikes and fixing bikes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I just, I hit the parachute and decided to go full time and, and I had to really rein myself in and, and stay centered and grounded. And, and that's why I'm a plotter and not a pantser because I, I cannot take chances with what I'm doing. I I realized that every day I have to learn something new every day. I have to test my ideas. I have to really sort of stay on top of getting better and better all the time instead of saying, yes, I'm a writer and I'm so great. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are far better at uh, talking about their books and they're about actually, you know, finding the time to write the books, (laughs) you know? Yes. Um. Yes. That is, that is very true. That is very true. And I, and I think a lot of people are, are terrified of success, you know, because they don't really, uh, as long as they're still working on their book, they don't have to put it out there. And I, and I would say that, that, that is a hundred percent not the way that you should look at it. You know, you should be terrified of success, but you know, it's like, it's like uh, parachuting, you know, like be terrified to jump out the door, but do it anyway, you yeah. know, 
and jump out there and pull the ripcord and parachute and, and enjoy the view that very few people get, you know? Yeah. Well, and like for me, it's until, you know, you can have everyone in your family tell you a million times that your book is good, but you're always going to have in your mind. Well, yeah, they're my family. Of course they say that. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. And until you actually get your book out there in front of some strangers, you'll never, you'll never know for sure. You know, you always have that doubt. Um, Imposter syndrome is real. I've talked about it on here before. Um, Oh yes. It's very real. And uh, I, I, so I I wound up, uh, I got my master's in music industry. And at the time uh, how the college I was going to did it was you had to, uh, it was a, it was a master's of post-secondary education. And so you half your classes were education classes and the other half or whatever your specialty was. And so that was the, I did music industry. And that was, I did that because that was the only way I could get a music industry degree due to a long, complicated series of events. Um, But right as I was graduating is when I rediscovered kind of my passion for writing and was instantly filled with like, man, I really wish I had uh, done English instead of uh, music industry at this point. <laughs> um, but for me, uh, the reason why was not necessarily to learn the craft, which would they have taught me some things? Yes, no doubt. Um, but just, I was mostly wanted it because at that point in my life, what I needed was strangers to tell me if I was wasting my time or not, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so um, uh, you just gotta, you just gotta take, you just gotta take the plunge, you know, you, you gotta jump out that airplane, you know? Yeah, uh, you really do. You so, really do. All right. Um, so go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, what, what is the worst thing that's going to happen is like, you know, somebody online might hurt your feelings with their review, but yeah. Well, and here's know, the, the beauty of it these days is let's say you put that first book out there. And, uh, you know, half the reviews come back, you know, how the grammar was terrible, you know, uh, it cussed too much, wh- whatever the complaints are. And uh, just listing my major fears there. Um, <laughs> the beauty of it is, especially like with self-publishing, um, all right, take it down, you know, take it down, rework it. They've told you what's wrong with it. Fix those things. And you can rebrand yourself, you know, it's, it's the internet, change your yeah. pen name, release yeah. the book again under a different pen name. Odds are no one's going to remember that this book was out for three weeks and got four terrible reviews, you know, put it out yeah. again. Now that it's a better product, you know, you don't, you don't have anything to lose except a little bit of time. Um, but it's not wasted time if you're learning something. That's exactly right, man. And that's, and, and falling down is a very crucial part of, uh, of learning any skill set that you have, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I always use that analogy of, of sort of a, a trade craft that you might learn. Cause everybody, everybody has like, uh, someone they know who's a tradesperson mm-hmm. and, and they watch them build things and, and, you know, they think, oh, well, that's just my, you know, my redneck uncle or whatever. And then they come over and they build a deck on your house and you're like, holy crap, this guy's amazing, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and, and you don't have to be spectacular the first time out. In fact, it's very helpful if you were not, you yeah. know, because getting lucky is the worst thing that can happen to you, you know, like 
if you look at Stephanie Meyer or, uh, or uh, any number of people who had a big successful first novel, man, it just really destroyed them, you know, because yeah. they weren't able to follow that up and everybody no. had this pressure on them to follow it up with something huge. Yeah. And well, I, I know like uh, uh, E.L. E. James, you know, like that, yeah. that really, at the, it, yeah. it was the right book at the right time, but that was all it had going for it. Like uh, I, I'm, it is rare for me to talk poorly about an author and she may be the most amazing person in all the land, but um, that book has a huge number of real flaws. <laughs> Just, oh yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's to the point where it it's baffling to me that it ever got published. Um, but because it was so wildly successful, what, what motivation did she have to fix mistakes, you know? Yes, that's right. And, and what, what books is she coming out with now? You know, no, yeah. no one can tell you. Uh, yeah. I think she, she released like three more books from the guy's perspective, the exact same story from the guy's perspective. And then now nothing. I'm now granted she's got more money than she'll ever be able to spend. So <laughs> that's right. I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel too bad for her. <laughs> But um, I think uh, I have no doubt that she is probably experiencing moments of frustration um, in her life that she probably, you know, she, you know, wipes her tears up with a thousand dollar bills. So it's okay. But (laughs) it is very much that frustration of like, well, why don't they like the rest of my stuff? You know, and that, that would eat at me so much. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Talk about your imposter syndrome. Can you imagine how much it's, uh, it's uh, absolutely trebled by the fact that she has all this money the form of success that, that we largely attribute is money. Yeah. Um, and then she can't duplicate that success. Yeah. So man, I, I think a lot of people would out. describe it as she was not successful because, you know, everyone's yes. Yeah, some people it's the, the, the number of zeros on the bank account is what success is. Yeah. But like someone like me, do I want a lot of zeros in my bank account? Yes, please go out and buy all my books. Um, I'll take all but, the zeros, please. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, I don't write these books. If, if I wanted to make money, I would not spend my time writing books. I would, I, I would right. go, I would go uh, enroll in a, uh, uh, like an electrical engineering program. You know, yeah. I would go learn, I would go become a plumber um, cause they yeah. make bank. Uh, so, but I write stories cause I, I want to write stories that people appreciate and love yeah. and knowing that if, you know, Hey, I've got a lot of zeros in the bank, but everyone trashes my books. Um, oof, that would, that would kill me. <laughs> yeah. And well, and, and I think there's a, there's a fine distinction to be made there. Like you have to, uh, like I won't mind someone lacing into me about a book if they have legitimate criticism. Oh yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of people who just have like, there's either a sociopolitical me- like method behind what they're doing or, or there's a, there's some sort of, I don't know, some, for some reason they just don't like your stupid face. Yeah, and and they just want to get on all your reviews and the, and then in your Facebook page and your Twitter and all that stuff and just drag you as hard as they can. Yeah, and and they will give their criticism too, but they'll they'll give themselves a sock puppet account and they won't do yeah. it, you know, through their own voice. But you know, you have to be careful who you listen to for criticism, you know. And I think yeah. that's an important part of of becoming a successful writer is understanding that 
that some people's opinion hat should have more weight than others. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Don't one bad review is functionally yeah. meaningless. You know, yeah. it's, you wrote a book that doesn't appeal to that person, or maybe it actually did appeal. It appealed to them enough that they decided to check it out. But for all, you know, you don't know what's going on in their personal life. They could be going through a divorce and they just hate everything in that moment. You know, That's exactly right, man. And so, you know, one bad review, like, so right as I started to like, to seriously take self-publishing seriously, um, I, I was in therapy and I, I was telling my therapist, like, look, I'm just, I'm just worried that I'm going to get that first review and I'm just going to have a come apart, you know, like yeah, I have a bad review, fear, you know, and okay. she, she told me, is like, look, one bad review. What does that, what does that matter? Like, you don't know yeah. what's like that review has absolutely nothing to do with you and everything to do with them. You know, they're bringing their biases, their, their cultural whatevers to this review that fundamentally has nothing to do with you. That's exactly Um, right. Now, you know, if you get 80 reviews that say, oh my God, this man has never heard of a comma, then yeah, maybe, maybe you start (laughs) to listen, you know? Yes. Um, But one bad review should not, uh, shouldn't be more than just a, oh, okay. Um, And Hey, I see a lot of authors now they take a really good bad review and they use that as their marketing you know yeah um yeah. It, <laughs> yes i love that i think yeah that's such a fantastic idea yeah i like i don't want any bad reviews and i <laughs> the the only the only reviews i've had that came in they were under uh like four stars they have they have not said anything they've just you know done like two stars and left um but I'm waiting. I'm just waiting for that good, that good, bad review. Cause I'm 100% going to use that in my marketing. You know, I just hope that they, you know, can string coherent sentences together so I can actually use it. <laughs> yeah. Or just give me like five or six words that I can put on the back of the yeah. cover. Yeah. Like, this book is total garbage. Yeah. Cusses way too much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no. All right. So, uh, 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 a hero of mine from from your neck of the woods uh, is a man named John Harkness, and oh, yeah. uh, he he talks. I've seen him at a number of panels, and he always talks about how no matter how fast authors write, they can never write as fast as someone reads. And so you can't keep up with the pace of demand by yourself. So share the love around. Um, so to that end, who is an author hero of yours? And then who is an author that you think we should be checking out that we might not be? Um, let's see. Uh, an author hero of mine is, is going to be uh, a guy named Kenneth Anderson. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a guy who was a British expat who lived in mm-hmm. India around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and whenever there was a man-eating tiger or panther, they would send him a telegram at the factory where he worked and he would take his rifle and he would go hunt this man eating animal because, yeah. you know, peasants in, in uh, India didn't have firearms. They would at, at the very most, they would have like a, some sort of black powder uh, rifle or something that yeah. they had sort of thrown together uh, and, and hunting tigers and man eating uh, big cats in general is very, very dangerous. Yeah. So this guy wrote, uh, I forget how many books, like five or six books. And, uh, and I have a big omnibus of his 
And he's just sort of an everyday guy who grew up with a really good education and he's a really good storyteller. And he's very much, um, you would, you would mistake him for being Southern if, if yeah. he weren't using some British slang, Yeah, but he has some of the best storytelling that, that I have read in terms of telling exciting stories and not getting bogged down yeah. in details. But he also has like, uh, that sort of campfire voice that I like, you know, yeah. well, not many people have heard of him. Well, I, so I actually have, um, and weird. So I, uh, weird. I, no one knows about this guy. Okay. No, but it's, I have a weird area of interest and that's the, the lines of Savo. Um, okay. Which they, if you've ever seen the movie, the ghost in the darkness. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have Colonel Patterson's book. I've got like a yes. hardcover of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Same. Well, I don't have a hardcover, but I, I, I had, I had a cup, a copy of his book. Um, fascinated by the lines of Savo. Um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, Wikipedia rabbit hole guy. And <laughs> yeah. so, you know, at the bottom, it'll have that list of like, check out these other man eaters, you know? Oh yeah. And so reading through all that, uh, uh, cause I was doing recent, it's like, so I, I have a minor in history. So all the, all the history talk we've been having was scratching a lot of my itches. Um, oh, but so, yeah, I did, I did a lot of research cause I was doing a, a steampunk retelling of the lines of Savo. Oh, cool. um, and so uh like a fantasy steampunk retelling so um and so yeah i i have actually heard of him so i haven't I, I haven't read his books i'm pretty sure my dad had copies of them though um he 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 had a penchant for collecting books like that so um but yeah okay so yes i have heard of your hero and most most of the the uh when i ask that question most of them are you know author heroes from the just the writing perspective, but there's a strong case to be made that he is basically a large cat killing superhero. <laughs> yeah. He very well. much is, you know? Yeah. Uh, he was a superhero to all those uh, villagers that he saved. Oh yeah. You know, because... I was, there's no telling how many lives he yeah. saved. Yeah. I mean, so... it's really, it's pretty incredible. And he has a really interesting set of supernatural tales in some of his books too. Like he talks about how he was at this uh, old abandoned. Um, there was, there's, all these sort of India is such a place that's rich in culture and history. Yeah. And, and there are places that where societies lived for a while and then died or were killed. And then they abandoned the place and they won't go near it again because of bad mojo. Mm-hmm. And he was at this place that was abandoned and it was like an old city with a big well in the middle. And he tells a story about seeing this spirit ascend out of this well and being oblivious to him. And because he was hidden, he was, yeah. he was there hunting something. So he was hiding behind this, uh, sort of hide that he had there. Um, and he, and he saw it come out of this well and sort of move around and float away. And I was like, that sounds like a story that I would have heard from one of my uncles in South Carolina when I was yeah. growing up. Like, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, okay. So it's not All just right. killing big cats. Like he has, he has a lot of like a lot of really cool stories and, and things that he does to deal with. Yeah. He has ghost stories and he has bureaucrat stories and he has all kinds yeah. of stuff. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll definitely like, it's one of those life is <laughs> there's far more books than I have time, but yeah. I think, I, I think I need to track, track those down. Yeah. Um, all right. So who's someone that we should be checking out that we might not be. Um, I would a hundred percent say that everyone should be checking out Mona Lisa Foster. 
Okay. Um, Mona Lisa Foster is yet another Eastern European immigrant that I know. Uh, but she's been here since gosh, the seventies or eighties. She's, mm. uh, she's older than I am. Uh, but she is, she's from Romania and she is whip smart. Like you mm. talk about somebody with like a 200 IQ. Yeah. Who's, who is a magnificent writer. Uh, I have conversations with her all the time on social media about the nuts and bolts of writing and the craft of writing. And she gets so angry that people do these cliches and all these <laughs> terrible things in their books. And she just uh, goes on these rants about it, but her books are really good. They're very well constructed. And she's the kind of person who will not be satisfied with simply selling books. She's already, you know, someone who's on a lot of panels talking about the craft of writing and about what she does because her perspective is very interesting, yeah. but her books are very, very good. She has a series called ravages of honor that's on uh, Amazon Yeah, and you can find her on social media. And she is, she was on Amazon, excuse me. She has recently taken all of her books off and she is selling through her own site, um, yeah. lisafoster.com. And, um, you can buy eBooks or you can buy hard copies that are autographed or you can catch her at various yeah. um, conventions. That is, that is definitely something that's kind of weighed heavily on my mind lately. Um, Cause you just see these horror stories of authors getting their accounts taken from them, you know, on yeah. Amazon. And yeah. I, I'm currently Amazon exclusive for, for Kindle unlimited. Um, because I'm finding that that's the best way for me to get reviews. And as a new author, that's so important. And the, the plan is long-term to definitely go wide. Um, and cause I'm just, I, I think about all the times like, what would I do if tomorrow Amazon said, you know, delete. Yeah, that's exactly it's terif- right. It's terrifying. So yeah. um, I, I'm definitely going to check her out to kind of, and the other thing is like, I would love to just sell through my site, but I'm also pretty lazy and don't want to <laughs> deal, deal, deal with shipping books. <laughs> that's what yeah. I love about like selling through, you know, someone like KDP, just them yes. handling all the back end for it. Like for me, it's, yeah. it's worth the, the making less money per sale just to not have to deal with the, the stress of it. So, yeah. well, I can, I can relate to you. The upside of, uh, of shipping hardcover books is that you get to connect with your reader a lot more than you ever will. If you sell them a print on demand copy yeah, and then, uh, or, or an ebook only. Um, a lot of people will buy my stuff and then they want to buy a hard copy from me so they can get one that's signed Yeah, because everyone's like, Oh my God, this is going to be like on Netflix before. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, thank you. But, yeah. but you know, it's always, it's always nice for me if I can sell someone a hard copy through my website and I can autograph it for them and send them a nice note. You know, yeah. because I was raised in that sort of Southern genteel culture where you send yeah. people notes and you, oh, yeah. you know, you say thank you and please and all that. I'm and a I, big, and I really I'm a enjoy, big postcard center. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the, uh, that's the upside is that, um, there's some research around, um, around marketing that's, that's sort of revealed that if you can develop super fans that they will go out and do a lot of the marketing for you. Because they'll promote you themselves. They'll be like, dude, I know this guy. And he sent me the greatest note with this book. And he's a real person. And he's like, and and I talked to him at a con and he took pictures with me and da, 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 da. And I cosplay one of his characters, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I've I've got one. I've got one. I'm going to 
shout them out. Steve Nichols, you're my super fan and I appreciate you. And I see you. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Good for you, Steve. Yeah. Way to get in yeah. there and do it. Right. All right. Yeah. You know, he's uh, everything I do. He's always the first to interact. Um, you know, he supports me on Patreon, like all that. Like he's, he's oh, fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and so, yes, that, that, that to me was like, I think it works well to not, to have stages of success. Like, don't just be like, you know, success for me is selling a hundred thousand copies, you know, maybe success is, Hey, I want step one is I want to get a hundred likes on my author page on Facebook. And then step two is I want three people to subscribe to my Patreon. Um, And then it's, I want a super fan, you know, something like that. And so like one of my steps is like, man, I just really want a fan. Like just <laughs> someone who is a yeah. legit fan that like actually like I can see that where they are like trying to promote my stuff to other people. They're always resharing my stuff. So when I finally got that, I was like, Ooh, okay, cool. I'm, I'm getting where I want to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's where you, you get the payoff for doing the hard work, you know, yeah. it's like a, you connect with people and someone reads your story and they're like, yeah, man, I get it. I, I got this out of it. And you're like, wow, you got that out of there. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I know we asked this question a little earlier, but we're going to kind of wrap on this. So we talked earlier about the black keys and how that was an influence on, on your series. Oh yeah. Uh, I love to ask people, um, do you play music when you write? And if so, what? Yes, I have uh, a different playlist for each character. Uh, Love it. So, uh, you know, all these people grew up in a specific period of time and in a specific culture, and they all have something that feels like home to them. And music is a big part of that. You know, yeah. like even the even the vampires that I write about, they all have something that reminds them of when they were young and before they died and became this thing. And and they all sort of they all have music that's appropriate for them. And it yeah. puts me sort of in the, in the headspace of where they are. Love that. I love that. Uh, I, and everyone always gives a slightly different answer. And, uh, uh, and at the end of the day, that's the core of this podcast for, for on the writing side of things, there's no one right way. Yeah, and yeah, on yeah. the, on the cultural side of things, there, there's no one way to be Southern, you know, Southern is that's, very much a very tapestry. Um, and, and, uh, you know, some of the interviews I do kind of hit on similar themes. Um, but this one, I just love how it is very much tied into immigrant culture in the South. Uh, yeah. And it's something that definitely does it basically get zero airtime really. Um, there's not a lot of like movies or, you know, anything like that that I can think of. So, um, but all right, so let's, let's end on where can we find you and your books? Uh, you can go to ashwellhustle.com or you can go to bentwrenches.com. Uh, both of those are my websites and they are sort of tied in together. I do a lot of my technical writing and ghostwriting through Bent Wrenches, and then I do my publication through there. Uh, but Asheville Hustle is where people can go to get my Asheville Hustle series. And then my other books are on Bent Wrenches. Love it. Love it. Yeah. All right. AD, this has been an absolute delight. Uh, 
went, you know, did not anticipate this was going to go in the direction that it did. Uh, all the history, like that, that pleases my little historian heart so much. You're taking the time yeah. to check out another uh, exciting uh, episode. It's fantastic having you on. Fantasy, um, yeah, I thought it was a talk to you. Know much, the I kept mean, no, 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 talking no, about no, the Nuts writing and history. All that jazz. Well, the passion comes through. So next time, y'all, you know, one thing to just drone on. Um, it's another thing to to share your passion. So um, I, I, I tell everyone that our plan is to uh, sometime next year, likely, we'll be doing follow-up episodes with everyone. Not, they won't be as long, but just kind of touch base, see where people are at, so we can kind of, you know, keep people this on. This podcast uh, is part of the Tales by Bob Network. And, see you know, all our great shows. might have a third Bob. book out, com. maybe in the series. We'll see. And uh, uh, all right, well... Uh, again, absolute light. Thank you so much for your time. And for everyone listening, uh, till next time, uh, y'all be good now. <laughs>